You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter O'Toole. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to In Perspective. I am Bob Branco, and this is episode 291, dated Friday, January 6th, 2023. Happy New Year, everybody. With me, as always, my good friend and colleague, Peter Alchel. Peter, what's going on? Happy New Year from Columbia, Missouri, where it's actually a tolerable stretch of weather. High in the 40s, low in the 20s, no snow. So I could go for my three-mile daily walks with my guide dog, and I'm happy. Glad to hear all that. Before we continue... Let me offer some thanks to people who make it possible for In Perspective to be made available to the public. We start out with our media outlets. Thank you very much for airing us when you do. Raymond Gay, our producer, thank you for what you do for us, editing and making sure that our program is a quality-sounding program. Also, Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place, we thank you for posting our programs up on Greeting Door 15. And also... Jacqueline Sylvia of JS Web Solutions, who archives in perspective on my website. To hear it, just go to www.brancoevents.com, click on In Perspective Podcasts, and you will see most of our archived shows from latest to earliest. It's a pleasure today to have with us another author, and you know, I really admire all the authors that we've had on the program. As an author myself, I know the work that's involved and the promotion that's involved in writing materials that, that you believe in. And so this week we're going to have Sally Rosenthal, author of Peonies in Winter, A Journey Through Loss, Grief, and Healing. Sally, how are you? Thank you. I'm I'm good, Bob. Thank you very much, and thank you, Peter. Bob, it's delighted to have you. And and Sally, let's start with a little of that about about yourself. Um, before you you started writing poetry, what kind? Who were you? What kinds of things were you doing? Who was uh, I? Yeah, um, who were you? I, who are you? <laughs> I have a checker. I have a checkered past. I could see until the last twenty years. So I had a master's in library science. I was an academic librarian. I wrote. Um, a lot of book reviews for Library Journal, and um, then I began to lose my vision in my late 20s due to retinopathy of prematurity. And um, RP? Yeah, retinopathy of prematurity. And I realized that there wasn't much of a call for potentially blind librarians, so I went to occupational therapy school and became an occupational therapist and worked and worked for and worked for a number of hospitals as an OT in psychiatric um, geriatrics. Um, then I wrote a lot of academic books, uh, chapters, peer-related um, journals. So I, I do have a checkered past, and um, now I write primarily for online and print animal-related publications. I was a little scattered there because someone just knocked on my door and wanted to drop a package off and I kept waving like, don't talk, don't talk. So, yeah, it, it, um, it's, it's, it's all good. So uh, I'm curious that's, that's about... who I am. <laughs> tell me a little about your occupational therapy work. What prompted you to, to go from library science to occupation therapy? And how do you think well, that I, work 
uh, influenced your I writing? Was, I was fortunate in that I was young enough. Um, I was in my early 30s when I had to leave library science because my vision was deteriorating. I was young enough that OVR and my long-term disability carrier, TIAA, would um, pay my tuition for occupational therapy school. And um, I was lucky enough that I still had enough vision that I could get hired as an occupational therapist. What I did primarily was work with people with dementia, um, helping them do tasks of daily living, um, a lot of orientation. Um, when I moved to my second job at a different hospital, I split my time between dementia and people with dissociative identity disorder, which used to be multiple personality disorder, and worked with them on time management, pre-vocational skills, things like that. Um, how it affected my writing, um, I wrote more, and it wasn't creative writing. It was a lot of academic writing and book reviews, but it was still writing, and I'm of the opinion that even if you write a, a shopping list, you're writing, you're um, putting your brain into that writing gear. So that, that's how I started I agree. writing. I agree with that statement, by the way. And, and I'm I, and sort of reading your book, Sally, I have a sense that your experiences uh, on the hospital ward or, or uh, you know, uh, had an influence in how you th- how you think about things, how you think about the topics you write about yeah. in your book. Does that make sense to you at all? Yes, it does. And actually, Bob, uh, I realized that both my careers as a college librarian and as an occupational therapist, I taught people how to do things. I didn't do it for them, but I helped them find information as a librarian. And as an occupational therapist, I helped them learn or relearn skills that they needed to go back into the world. So um, I think that comes out in my poetry. I believe very firmly that we are resilient people. And one of the hardest things to be resilient over is grief. And um, that's what I write from today. Yeah, the title, right? Peonies in Winter, a love, a journey yeah. through loss, grief, and healing. You know, Sally, for those of for those people listening who don't know what the word means, could you please define peonies? Um, okay, peonies are flowers that grow primarily in the spring for about two or three weeks. They are generally pink. Um, I knew them from my American grandmother's garden, and Sandy, my husband used to buy me um, flower essences colognes in peony, lavender, iris, and rose. And I thought, after he died, I thought I had given whatever unopened bottles I had left to my church's flea market. Uh, I hadn't. I found one when I was cleaning a closet out in a, on a cold, snowy February morning when I couldn't organize the rest of my life, it was time to declutter a closet, and I came across a bottle of peony cologne. 
didn't want to smell it, but of course I did. Um, I thought it would take me back to too many sad memories. But what it, what it did was actually make me realize that life goes on and you carry these memories with you and there's a lot of joy. So that's where Peonies and Winter comes from. I see. And, and, you, and you write about that beautifully. It's, I think, the second uh, piece in that's, your book. That's the second uh, piece. Thank you. And, and uh, it really is sort of an extraordinary uh, uh, piece about surprises. And there's lots of surprises in, 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 your, in your book, you know, lots of unexpected turns of phrases and things that I, that I found stunning. Uh, Thank you. I, I was going to ask you um, what prompted you to, to write this book, but I think the first essay or the first poem, which uh, you wanted to read, uh, answers that question. So if you wouldn't mind reading that, I'd be delighted to, uh, to, uh, to, to listen sure. to it. Um, it's called Across My Kitchen Table. Shared only with my friends for years, my poems now travel to strangers, not without trepidation, I offer each one as I would a cup of coffee to a guest in the hopes that words can heal broken hearts as we unravel our webs of grief. What I really wanted to do with this, with this book was really have someone sit down across my kitchen table um, and just offer them a cup of coffee and the space to heal. Um, and before we heal, we need to process things. And I processed a lot of my grief through poetry. What I thought I was going to write was a book on caregiving. And when I sat down and looked at what I had, I realized that it, a lot of it didn't deal specifically with caregiving, but it dealt with the animals and the people who made me the person who could become a caregiver for a chronically ill husband. So that's that's where I started and what I went with. So I have there, to thank people, I'm sorry, keep going. I have, to, I have to thank people like Deanna and Deborah, Alice and Abby and Marlene and, and Leonard, all the guy all the um, not guiding eyes, all the behind our eyes people who um, really pushed me to do this. Because ordinarily, I'm a very private person. I wouldn't um, just hand things to people and say, "Oh, look, I wrote a book." Um, you know, it. But I found that most people who were in my position, and everybody's going to be in a position of loss sometime in your life. Nobody wants to talk about it to you after the initial loss and the funeral's over. Um, people go back to their lives, which they should go back to. But the person who lost something is just sitting there thinking, I'm up at 3 in the morning. You know, is there anybody I can talk to about this? And that's what I wanted this book to be, something that people could pick up and get some solace from. Perhaps and I think I, I, I relate to. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think this is really a remarkable therapeutic uh Beautiful uh, book to do that. And it sort of reminds me of something, you know, that, that we all need to remember, those of us who were trying to support people that through a crisis, that often the support goes away after the first week of a crisis. And what people really need is support a month after the crisis or three months after the death or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And exactly. uh, that this book, this book, it does that in a remarkable way. 
Um, there is quite a bit of sort of early childhood memory in this book. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I'm going to ask Deanna uh, to read an essay that you wrote called Charles Palmer. So, Deanna, if you could get ready, I'd be appreciate it. But before you, if you could set up the reading and sort of talk about sort of the memoir component of your childhood that's in this book. Okay. Um, I am 70, and my mother was English from a small from a small Midland city called Leicester. During World War II, she met my father, who was an American paratrooper, and they married, having known each other for about, oh, two months, as people did in wartime. And she came to America with him and settled here and only went back once. This was not the time where um, lower middle class people had airfare or you know, there was no um, frequent flyer miles. There were no um, internet, no email. I wrote letters to my grandmother and mailed them, and she got them seven days later, and then she wrote back to me. So I was really grew up with this World War II mentality behind me that um, if my brother and I didn't want to eat something at dinner, my mother would say, if you'd lived through the war, you'd be glad to eat that. So yeah. um, as a consequence, the dog under our kitchen table became very fat. <laughs> um, we just left him a lot of things. <laughs> but um, it, it really stood me in good stead because I didn't grow up thinking that life was fair or easy. My dad was one of five people in his company who survived the D-Day landing on the beach at Normandy. And my mother got up each morning and walked across rubble of bombed-out houses in her neighborhood. And I think that you don't grow up thinking that life is fair when you have that as a background. But what I did believe that people were resilient. They got on with things. And I think as someone who was born five and a half months, at five and a half months, and had a stroke from medical negligence at the day before I was supposed to come home, um, having survived in the incubator for three months, and then um, began losing vision in my late 20s. I think that attitude and the ancestral background really helped me. It gave me a feeling that I could go on and get through things. That that's where a lot of this poetry and early life comes from. I think that's well stated. Deanna, are you there? Yes, ready. Okay, would you mind reading the, the essay that you wrote called Charles Palmer? Yes, Charles Palmer. I never met Charles Palmer. An ocean separated us. By the time I made my first trip to England in 1979, he'd been dead for almost 20 years. During that trip... I sat on a bench across the road from a house in the Midlands city of Leicester, a single home with a bright blue door and a well-tended garden. It was not unlike others on East Park Road. Only the American tourist on the bench knew how special it was. Charles Palmer had lived there with his wife Harriet and their two daughters, Mabel and Kathleen the latter of whom became my mother. As a child in a small 
Pennsylvania town where Kathleen had settled with her American GI husband, I absorbed the stories of my mother told of her home and family. While I could recount tales about my grandmother and aunt, I knew little about my grandfather. This dearth of knowledge came not from lack of love on my mother's part, but rather from the man himself. Born in 1880, Charles was too old for military service in both world wars, but his age did not exclude him from performing on the home front as a nightly air raid warden. In the manner typical of many British men of his generation, he went about his rounds in the blackout and did what he could to keep his neighbors safe from German bombs. When morning came, he went to his job as a woodturner, often stepping through the rubble remaining from destroyed homes and businesses. The dignity and quiet determination. He simply did what needed to be done, spending his days at work fashioning bowls, candlesticks, and other useful items of practical beauty. From burnished wood, he set an example for the unborn granddaughter he would never hold in his arms. I find it strangely Miraculous that a man whose voice I have never heard or with whom I haven't shared a pot of tea could have played such a central role in my life. His getting on with things spirit found its way into my DNA as did his working with Wood, not as creative with my hands as Charles was, I became a writer whose words flowed out of her onto the wood pulp of paper until blindness forced me to use a computer. No, Charles Palmer and I never met, but if we had, I like to think he would have been as quietly proud of me as I have been of him. Although we inhabited different times and places, I believe we would have recognized each other as kindred spirits. So, Diana, before Thanks, you Diana. before you go away, was there anything about that passage that really struck you? No, um, I actually am a member of. Um, Sally's small writing group and so we see a lot of each other's work every month we meet and critique and I was one of the ones that pressured her to publish this book because she has a profound talent for drawing you in to like a, a snapshot of a moment in time and I think that this one you can see Sally sitting on that bench looking at that little house and remembering someone she never met. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Thank you, Deanna. I appreciate you Thank reading Thank you, Deanna. It. That was well said. And it was it was well said. So um so there's there's quite a few essays about your childhood, you know, uh 
uh, and then you sort of move on to um, uh, sort of the loss part, right? Is that a fair sort of summary of what how that's, the book progresses? Yeah, that, that's what okay. I that's more than a fair assumption. Okay, um, I just want to make sure I'm I'm tracking, which is great. Yeah, do you want to talk a little about that sort of uh, sort of the, sure. the next picture um, of the book, and then I'm gonna I, I think you're the one who's reading Solace. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, um, so so go ahead and set that up and the read. Rest it. Of my, besides the fact that the rest of my life isn't that interesting, um, I really wanted to um, present things that I had lived through and grief that I wouldn't say recovered from because I don't think you recover from things. I think you learn to live with them and around them. Adjustments. And one one of the first poems, actually the first poem I wrote in decades was the one called Solace. And it was written a few months after my mother died. And I felt so guilty about the things I couldn't do for her before she died, I kept thinking, well, at least I brought her a dog in my second guide dog, Greta, because my mother was English and crazy about dogs. So um, I walked around with this phrase, I brought my mother a dog for a couple of months until I was getting a crown made at the dentist and I had about 30 minutes with nothing to do. And I just, this poem just came to me and I hadn't written poems in decades so that, that's how it all started. Um, and Deanna, uh, are you ready for solace? I, yes, reading solace? Yeah. Okay. Please, yes, please I'm reading Solace. Go ahead. Solace, in memory of Kathleen Bennett, 1916 to 2008. I brought my mother a dog to polish the dullness of a nursing home routine and make it sparkle with Labrador enthusiasm. I brought my mother a dog to remind her she was the same person whose 91 years had been blessed by canine devotion. I brought my mother a dog to salve my conscience for the care I could not provide and to assuage my guilt for the luxuries I had at home of meals of my own choosing, hot cups of tea, and quiet privacy. I brought my mother a dog a few hours before she died as I held her waif-like hand, listening to her changing breath and bidding her safe travel. I prayed that a woman in the nursing home bed that held no hint of home, realized I had brought us both a dog. Thank you, Deanna. Beautifully read, Deanna. And it was, it's moving. It's a beautiful poem. Um, I, I to, um, so I want, I, I wanted to ask you, I was curious, because the next poem after that is called Mother's Day. And usually your poem is written sort of in the uh, first person or, you know, I or we. This one... Right. Is written more uh, uh, distant. I don't know if that's the right word. In the third On the person. Second, yeah. Uh, um, can you do you remember why? What prompted you to make that call and not um, write it in, I believe, in first? Or, um, ahead, that's sorry. an interesting question. I believe Alice also asked me that question a few years ago. I think I was too close to the sorrow at that point that 
I needed the perspective. I needed to step away and write it in the third person. I don't think I could have come up with a poem that was really worth anything if I'd written it from the first person. In other words, more space, more freedom. Yeah, yeah. So just just to give a sense um, how this poem starts, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It, It starts... On the second Mother's Day without her, my my mother's daughter woke to the ache of memory and warmed arthritic hands on a cup of coffee while sitting with the yellow Labrador who had loved them both. And it goes on from there. It just struck yeah, me coming from the poem. Yeah. So let's talk about your guide dog. Um, because, oh, uh, oh I, mean, I love you. I thought you would. So, um, but talk about, because I know, talk about your relationship with guiding eyes. And sort of because uh, I understand that you're donating the proceeds to Guiding Eyes. So talk a little about your relationship with Guiding yes. Eyes and your dogs and all that good stuff. I've had, um, of course, people are coming in to drop off packages now. Um, I've had three guide dogs from Guiding Eyes for the Blind. I've had three guide dogs from Guiding Eyes for the Blind. The um, first one I will have gotten 20 years ago this March. Um, I needed specialized training because uh, as a stroke survivor, I dragged the left side of my body and I cannot walk a straight line. At the time I got Boise, I was totally blind. And over the last several years, I became profoundly deaf from age-related hearing loss, genetic and that's not a useful combination, but I manage pretty well with hearing aids. My second guide dog, Greta, also known as Slut Dog, because she was went over on her back for anybody to rub her tummy. She was a sweetheart. <laughs> and, and she'd be the first person to tell you that. Um, Lawrence, my last guide dog, is still alive. He retired a few months after Sandy died and went to live with dear friends of mine in Florida, Judy and Skip, who had actually lived in Maryland and raised my first dog, Boise. So um, Lawrence, I saw Lawrence a few months ago that Judy and Skip came up to Philadelphia, and um, Lawrence and Judy and Skip and I went out to lunch, and I was sitting out on the bench outside my retirement community waiting for them, and Judy said, when Lawrence saw me, she didn't realize that he could jump that high. <laughs> uh, but I was very fortunate to have these dogs because a lot of guide dog schools would not have trained me. I, I'm i not your typical guide dog user. At the time, I was um, walking behind my husband holding on the back of a wheelchair, and um, it was... It was um, kind of odd because he also had a service dog, a black lab named Pumpkin, who turned out to be Greta's half-sister. Guiding Eyes Eyes had given um, donor semen to Susquehanna service dogs, and we found out a year into it that Pumpkin and Greta were half-sisters, which was kind of fluky thing. But when I wrote this book, I knew I wasn't going to make big money from it. Nobody makes big money from books unless you're John Grisham. But I wanted to write it to give to people, and 
I also wanted to give something back to something. And, of course, it was Guiding Eyes because they had given me three wonderful dogs who made my life totally different. Um, I told Kathy Sabricki, who retired a few, uh, about a year ago, that her husband, Ted, who had started the program, had made it possible for me and people like me to become guide dog handlers. And I wanted to give it back. Um, it sold fairly well for uh, an independently published book. Um, I'm going to be writing a check for my first year's royalties, just a little under $400 to Guiding Eyes. So, um, you know, I hope it keeps selling here and there. And, um, you know, I whether I will get another dog or not at this point in my life, I don't know. I'm on the waiting list. COVID kind of threw a, a whammy into things. And um, I'm not making a decision. Um, Andrea Martini, who was most of my dog's trainer at Guiding, I said, you don't have to decide till a dog comes up and then you decide. So Thank you for that. Now. So um, uh, this seems like a good place to ask, how can people buy your book? Okay, um, you can buy it on Audible, on, I mean, sorry, on Amazon.com. You can get a print version uh, in hardcover or paperback. I also have a Kindle version on Amazon that is text-to-speech related. And I kept the price low enough so it's under $4 um, in Kindle and it's seven fifty in paperback. So I wanted people to be able to buy it and not have to spend a lot of money because a lot of people who need it don't have a lot of money. And it's also on Audible with a wonderful, wonderful narrator. Her name was Lillian Eves. And if I had, a, had to buy it, I'd go for the Audible edition. It's three ninety nine, And in fact, I just listened to it this afternoon. Very reasonably priced. Yeah, and if you if you can't afford the three ninety nine, you could, you know, sign up for a free month's um, trial of Audible and get that book as your free book. So um, it's it's there for people who need it, and it's there for people who want to hand it on to other people. In fact, it's gotten a lot of word of mouth word of mouth um, sales. People have contacted me and said. My neighbor's husband just died. I bought this for them. And the nicest, um, I got an email from a woman in Missouri who is a social worker in the organ transplant section of that hospital. And she said she was going to use it for her staff meeting, one of the poems for her staff meeting the next morning about um, transplant from a perspective of a transplant donor, which just made my day. Well, I, I wanted for this book. Well, I think I think you're doing great, uh, Deborah Kendrick. Um, I think you're the responsible for reading the poem "Running Free." If you could uh, prepare to um, do that, is that correct? Do I have the my facts correct? Running free. You want that one first? I do. I do. Not that the one next. Okay. okay. I do want that one. I, I, uh, I think it fits better with the. The flow okay. of this, I think it's chronologically it comes better before liminal time. Yeah. So, okay. so, so, Deborah, are you ready? Let's let's hear running three. Before you do that, can you give a uh, set us up a little bit? Uh, 
Sally, about this poem? Um, this is one that I wrote shortly after Sandy died, and well, about a year after his, because the service dog also had died at that point. And um, just to let you know, Pumpkin was the other woman in my marriage. Um, he had a picture of Sandy and Pumpkin blown up for his memorial service because um, I knew, you know, service drugs, Trump wives, and I realized that um, he was her, she was his true love, and I accepted that. Um, so this is where running free comes from. All right, Deborah, if you wouldn't mind. Running free. A not uncommon practice, two souls amble along the water's edge, leaving prints in cool, wet sand and relishing the time before them. Warmed, not burned, by a rising sun, these old friends enjoy the peace found in one another's company as seagulls shriek and dive. Tossing driftwood high into salty air, the man laughs as his dog takes chase. Unencumbered by wheelchairs and service dog vests, they race along eternity's shore. Thank you, Deborah. Thanks, Deborah. Uh, Thank you, yeah. Deborah. So, um, Bob, I think it's pretty, I think it's time to open the show for questions. It, seems like it is. So you're that. listening, you're listening to Win Perspective. He's Peter Alchel and I'm Bob Branco. And today we have author Sally Rosenthal. She wrote a book called Peonies in Winter, A Journey Through Loss, Grief, and Healing. I'm going to turn the festivities over to Raymond Gay, who will let us know if there are any participants waiting to ask Sally any questions, right? Yes, actually. We have uh, Jane first and then Deanna. Jane, yes. Jane. Well, hello to all of you and Sally, especially as a writer myself. I appreciate your book for the reflections it gives and provides um, Thank you. that are moving, moving not only um, to my perceptions and spirit and emotions, but moving, physically moving um, in time and space. I loved the description uh, and the leap from traveling the shore of a beach here on Earth, which I love. I grew up along the Pacific Coast in Oregon, to walking eternity shores. That was great. It was a great leap. So I just commend that. And my question for you is, what was the hardest thing, the most difficult thing, you had to find out that you needed to learn about, that you thought you already knew something about, and you had to fess up and own that you just didn't know and you needed to learn new things or different things. I I would love to know that. I think um, the the immediate answer is after Sandy died, I was in an avalanche of paperwork, um, and I couldn't do it. So 
I had to ask people for help, and I don't like to ask people for help. I would give help to anybody, but God forbid I should ask for help. So that that was the hardest thing I had to do. I really, I really appreciate that. Um, as my husband's Parkinson's gets more pronounced, I'm finding that the years of our marriage have, were blessed by his uh, reading. And I, yeah. I hope, I hope by God's good grace that I have thanked him profoundly and profusely for that even more as I, as I've seen it. As, as I've had to ask for help and, um, I, uh, that's hard for him to relinquish reading because it's something we shared so much. And I just say, it's okay, Tom. Let's just have her read it. It's no big deal. It's just a piece of mail, but it's an important piece of mail. Yeah. Yeah. You know how that goes. I, I can, I can scan things, but you can't hmm. scan insurance forms and so It's very difficult. You just need help. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, I, I will be quiet, so carry on. Go on. So, um, uh, who is reading the poem Loss? Uh, uh, um, oh, I, I am. Would you, I think this is a good time for you to read that poem. Uh, if okay. you wouldn't mind. Um, um, uh, I know, don't, don't, don't worry about it. I haven't forgotten you. Um, right. Uh, so, if we don't get the level time, it's fine. Um, yeah. Loss, I wrote, believe it or not, four days after Sandy died. Um, loss. A week before my husband died, I lost my wedding ring. It slipped unnoticed from my hand and rolled away onto a coffee shop's parking lot, amid apples in the produce section, or in wet grass at dusk. I searched for it to no avail, hoping it would reappear under our kitchen table, beneath socks in the laundry basket, or in the dryer's lint filter. A week After I lost my wedding ring, my husband died when an aneurysm flooded his brain at breakfast. As I held his hand in intensive care and signed organ donation forms, I knew my husband, like the ring, was gone forever. Very moving. Yeah. Thank Uh, you. I I, I lost my wedding ring um, in a very different set of circumstances, but it's a... You know, it, it's you know, you it, it's it's a it's a powerful symbol, and it's not the kind of thing you you, you want to lose. And, and I kind of took lose. it as an omen. I didn't think yeah. he was going to die the next week. But. Uh, I think Deanna was next, Ray. Yes, <laughs> here I am. Deanna, you are next. Hi, Deanna. Yeah. Hi. Um. Okay, Sally. So, as a writer, what is what is your plan for another book? Oh. <laughs> Um, you're going to push me toward this, aren't you? Um, yes, I am. You didn't, you didn't pressure me. You, you very gently nudged me. Um, I do have a plan for a second book. It's something that I've just started to write because I wanted to go month by month. I'm starting in, in the beginning of the year. I turned 70 a little over a month ago, and I thought, well, why not chronicle that year, but Chronicle in in a way that other people can pick it up and learn to write or realize that they have a story to tell too. That's what I'm working on. It, can you say a little more about that? How, is it sort of a 
tutorial? Is it a, a set of stories? What? Oh, how I, do you... I look at it. I look at it as kind of a guided workbook and memoir combined. Um, the working title is called "Writing to Remember," and in that, writing can be a noun or it can be a verb, because I believe that what I did in Peonies was keep people's memories alive. I'm the last person who has memories of many of those people or animals. And I I think it's important to honor them. And I think everybody has people or animals in their lives that they want to honor and remember. So, um, well, I think I think it's a valuable thing you're doing. And when it comes out, be sure to let us know, and we'll bring, we'll bring you onto our introspective again. Uh, uh, Ray, how many folks do we have uh, on on hold? Uh, about three. Okay, so who's the next person? I think uh, Anne Chaipetta. You are next. Anne. Uh, no, Anna. Annie. Annie. Hi, Hi everyone. Hi. Hey, Hi, Sally. Annie. Hey, Peter. Hi, hey, Bob. How's it going? Hey, Ray. Um, Sally, I I couldn't not be here. <laughs> um, I remember <laughs> the your yeah. Your, uh, congratulations on this book. I was just talking about it to someone else today. Um, and, uh, how it came to be, uh, the title itself. Did you, you didn't talk about that already, did you? Um, I, I did in the very beginning. Oh, you yeah. did. Oh, cause I missed that. All right. So never mind. But I wanted to, <laughs> wanted to, um, just tell you that I remember I, I hadn't really known who you were until I read Solace. And I remember that was where I connected with your writing and your work. And I want to just uh, thank you for um, putting your heart on the page and sharing it with all of us. And it's very meaningful to a lot of people. So thank you. I remember um, you contacted me and said, can I read this for the Guiding Eyes newsletter? And I thought, wow, Annie Chief, I don't want to read it. Yeah, sure. Go <laughs> um, <Yeah. so> I- ahead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, and I can't wait for your for your. I can't believe Deanna pressured you into this. <laughs> you must have had no, like she, uh, she nudged the, her. She nudged, nudged her, nudged you into it. You must yeah. have had a colonel in there anyway. So yeah, my my write my writing group, um, run by Leonard, um, pressured me and not pressured me. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Into it. yeah, yeah. Uh, so good for you. I can't well, wait to I, read I, it. I, I think Thank it's you. a wonder. I think it's a wonderful project. I, I do think it's a wonderful project. Thank you, Annie. Yep. Uh, Ray, Ray, who's next? Peter, I, next. I believe Peter wanted oh. to read Night Visitor at one point too. I do want to read it, but I also I, I, it's not a okay. it's not a high priority. I want to make sure people get a chance to ask you questions. Okay. So, so we have so Marlene. So we have Marlene next, and then Joe, and that's for that's hands raised. As okay, if folks want to raise your hands, do it now because we're running short on time. Who's Hi, Marlene. Next? With Marlene. Hi. Okay. Hi, Marlene. Hi, Hi Marlene. Bob. Hi. Hi, Hi everybody. <laughs> hey, Marlene. I, I don't have a question. I just wanted to say what a absolutely beautiful broadcast this is. We did a book launch with Sally last year in April, and that was absolutely fabulous. But I love how this has uh, taken on a different perspective. And it's just beautiful. And Sally, I'm so happy you're going to write another book. And thank you so much for mentioning me in your acknowledgement. I was so surprised. So congrats. Well, it, this is wonderful. Behind our eyes is very important to me. Thank, thank you. you. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank, thank you. And uh, who's next? Joe and then Alan. Okay. Joe. Joe. Uh, good evening. Hi. Uh, I, 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 I unfortunately have not read your book, but I've been listening to this broadcast and it's exceptional. And there are so many parallels that you express about this book that I can relate to. Um, also, I'm not entirely sure, but are you from Philadelphia too? Yes, I am. I am as well. Um, I'm from Lancaster County originally, but I went to Drexel for graduate school and just stayed here. Okay, I'm a graduate of Temple University. I'm in South Philly right now. I'm in the Northeast. Okay. Um, I have been aspiring to be a writer for a while, but one of the biggest passion pieces that I've had was an autobiography. And I wanted to kind of piece my story together. So many of my friends have tried to encourage me to put pen to paper about my life. Um, and one of the questions um, that I have for you, sometimes uh, throughout your life, you go through painful situations. That's not just grief, but just um, turmoil. And then you, you know, also go through parts of your life where it is a dark road of grief. And I kind of went through a couple different streaks in my life of both. And while trying to write the book, I had struggles uh, with recalling uh, a lot of the memory, maybe because it was, you know, uh, something I tried to block out. So my question to you is when writing a book about, you know, grief and, and how you handled it or, or trying to express it, did you ever struggle with um, trying to recall um, the visualization of those memories? Um, I'm going to be very blunt and say, no, I didn't. The main reason was I had a purpose in writing this book. I really wanted to be able to sit down metaphorically at my kitchen table and hand this to somebody. I wanted to help somebody. I think that's what um, really propelled me to do it. And I was at the point um, two years after Sandy died that I could really say, okay, you know, I, I'm here. What do I want to do with this? I teach people, which I had done as a librarian and as, as an occupational therapist. Well, I think um, keeping my potential reader and audience in mind was what really put it in a more positive light for me. And, and speaking for myself, who, who also wrote, who did write a memoir, um, that knowing who your audience is uh, really helps. It helps, yeah. for me, it helped me structure the book it helped me pick out details because there are things that I wrote about that I didn't fully remember either. Um, but I, you know, I tried my best to be true to what I remember, but our memories are fickle, especially in crisis like this. And yeah. you do your best to reconstruct, but it's never going to be perfect. You know, I also ask people around me if they, what they remembered sometimes, but you know, you do the best you can. And if it's a powerful enough story, it will work. Yeah, um, I agree. That, that's, 
that's my take on that for what it's worth. Uh, let's see. Uh, Ray, there's somebody else after. Thank you, Joe. Um, Thanks, Joe. Alan Go Eagles. Next, and then I think we should get to the poem as well. Okay. So, Alan. Hey, Hi, Sally. Alan. It, 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 I just want to say it, it, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and the book groups. And I want to thank you for putting your heart on the line in these pages. So I've not read the book yet, but I've attended a couple of these meetings where you talked about it and I just bought it from audible. So I will be reading it. And uh, I, 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 you know, keep, keep on beating the drums of resilience because I, I, I have a different, I call it adaptability. I think it's the same thing. I think we're, I think we preach the same thing. You know, the worst thing anybody can do is to feel sorry for themselves. And, uh, uh, yeah, you're not one of those people. And I want to thank you for that and just, uh, keep on doing what you do good. And, and when Deanna nudges, you just tr- tr- try to listen to her because we all, we all benefit. And, and, and you know, and thank- Sally, if I can add, you've shown us already how much you don't feel sorry for yourself when you were losing your vision. And when you realized that there may not have been any further calls for a visually impaired library scientist or, or whatever you were doing for the library, you jumped right into another profession and you learned right. how to uh, apply it took that. about a year and a half to get the funding for it. And, um, but the effort is what I'm it. talking about, basically. Yeah, yeah. Not so much the length of time. Yeah. One of the things I've important. learned, one of the things I've learned, and Sally, I'm curious to know what you what you think about this. We talked about being resilient and being uh, full of grit is another word that's often used um, uh, in these kind of circumstances. And what I learned, especially what well, I've been going through the past year or so, a year and a half, is sometimes you need maybe not to feel sorry for yourself, but but not to run from the tough feelings. You really do need to to uh, to run toward them and incorporate them. You have to them. go through it. You, you have to go through it. To if you try to sidetrack it, um, you're just going to carry it around with you. And, and not only are you going to carry it around with you, but it's going to pass on from generation to generation, uh, yeah. more, more likely than not. And uh, it's it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. And sometimes you have to go through a, a mourning process. And that may mean, you know, pulling back for a while. Um, uh, and hopefully your support system will will help you do help you do that. Sometimes it doesn't work. Like, I, I get that, yeah. but but I but I'd I also like to recommend chocolate. Yes, you have a, a couple of a couple of pieces about chocolate, mm-hmm. don't you? You have one yeah. at the very beginning. Where you one of my about, weaknesses. Yeah, yeah. at the very end, you you sort of write about uh you know uh, how you sort of survive, and you always, at the end you say something like chocolate always helps. And yeah. I, I agree with that too. I I eat I eat a lot of dark chocolate, uh, and uh, it was it was it was wonderful. Um, Ray, is there any, any other people with raised hands? No. Okay. So I, I, I in thinking about, um, uh, uh, Sally's relationship with dogs, there are quite a few poems in this, uh, uh in this collection with, with, where dogs play a key role and all of them are terrific. But the one that really moved me was, I think it's called Knife Visitor. Is that right, Jane? Knife uh, Visitor, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to read it. And hope that uh, it, it says something to, to people as much as it said to me. So, Night Visitor. She came to me in a deep sleep's dream. Or perhaps in a moment hovering between dawn and waking. Although we had not met, I felt no fear as I knew knelt beside her sitting bulk. Her soft, warm muzzle 
nudged my hand, and I cupped it before my fingers moved up to silky ears and the thick ruff that almost hid her collar. Tracing solid shoulders and a strong back, I felt my eager fingers moved to grasp a harness handle, but hesitated because this canine visitor did not belong to me. In wordless communion, we spoke heart language. As she told me she was waiting for me on the pandemic's other side to walk beside me and guide me through my 70s. Cautioning her that my older body and quiet days might mean I could not meet her there. I knew we would be together in other lives and forms because love transcends time and place. As she faded into the night or dawn, I woke to feel the lingering warmth of her fur on my hands and a flickering light in my soul. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank thank you you for, thank you for writing it. Um, you, you write a lot about your, um, two things I want to sort of touch on, uh, before we go. What is your, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with what we can. Um, and that is to do with, you write a lot about your, toward the end about your experience with COVID. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, Cindy died in May 2019. Lawrence, my third guide dog, retired that September. And I decided that I needed another animal. So I adopted Thames and my shelter cat in December. And I thought, oh, thank God this year is over. It's going to be so much better from here on in. And then a pandemic hit. Um, so there I was. I, I live in a retirement community in an apartment. And we were on lockdown for months on end. And having lived through a horrible year before that, I could either have sat and wallowed or I could have really processed a lot. And I was lucky that my mother raised me not to be a wallower. So that's that's where it came from. I I spent a lot of time alone. That could have been enough to push me over the proverbial edge, or I could do something with it. And this is what I chose to do. And you have uh, you write a lot. The other thing I was going to write about, which you mentioned it a little bit, you write about your cat and the the sort of therapeutic role she played in your life as you went through all this. Oh um, yeah, Tamsin. She's, she's actually got her picture on the back of the book. Um, she's a sweetheart. I went to adopt a cat at a shelter, and she was the first one I took out of the cage over to the meet and greet room. The friend who went with me said, "This cat has not taken her eyes off you." except to look at the door like, when are we going home? So we did. And and she as you, you, I'm sorry, keep going. She was supposed to be very shy and and withdrawn, and she came home and just took over my apartment and slept with me that night. And I said, oh, I think I think you really conned them at the shelter, either that or you conned me. But um, she's, she's wonderful. I can't say enough about her. Well, and as, and as you say in the book, and it's so true, Cats pick their owners. Yes, they do. Cat, Emily, yeah, what's the cat's up. name? Tamsin, T-A-M-S-I-N. Tamsin. It's a Welsh name. Yeah, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Welsh. It's Welsh, right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Tamsin. 
anyway, uh, so I just want to thank you. And uh, again, let's give a plug to how people can order your book. Okay. Um, you can go on Amazon and order it in paperback, hardback, or text-to-speech enabled Kindle. Or you can go on Audible, which would be my recommendation, and get a wonderful, wonderful reading of it by a reader named Lillian Eves, who is phenomenal. I I was listening to her read it, and I thought, my God, I wrote that stuff? But um, she's just, she's miraculous. So um, I want to thank Bob and Peter and all the technical people and everybody who showed up and who appreciates my work and pushes me to make it public. That's Peonies in Winter. That's spelled P-E-O-N-I-E-S for those listeners who needed that information. And, of course, the subtitle is A Journey Through Loss, Grief, and Healing. Sally, Mm -hmm. it's an honor to have you on our program. And uh, good luck with your new new, uh, memory book that you're working on. And let us know when that's complete. Thanks for appearing. Okay. Next week, we're going to talk about a subject that's going to hit home with a lot of people. Identity, security, the whole nine yards and how it's affecting people. Pete Donahue of San Antonio, Texas has firsthand information and experience about this dilemma. He's going to talk to us about it next week on In Perspective. In the meantime, thank you, Ray. Thank you to all the people who participated and those who Read some of Sally's work tonight as well. And Peter, thank you, of course, for being the co-host today. And as always, and go safe with God's abundant blessings, everybody. I'm Bob Branco. Catch you next week on In Perspective.